He's like, I have to shit. I have to go now. There's no, there's no way I'm going to make it out of here. I'm like, well, hold it. I mean, we are, we're going to be done in like 15 minutes. You'll be fine. So he's sitting on the, the peak of this roof and shits his pants. Fully shits his <laughs> pants. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome back to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. We have a special episode in store for you today. This episode is all about questions from the firehouse. We've got questions ranging from Gambling Al to Sharding Jim to Voice Cracking Kyle. We cover topics including mining versus nodes, market manipulation, trading, CBDCs, beginner resources, hardware wallets, and we also cover how to make your friends shit their pants. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Hello, everybody. Welcome inside the Kraken's Den. I'm Dan, joined by Josh. And tonight, we are starting a what we think will be a series called Questions from the Firehouse. We have some big questions from some big guys. These are some names that you're going to get well acquainted with. And uh, we're going to jump right in. They uh, have sent us a list of inquiries. We will do our very best job to answer them. First question comes from Big Mike. And Big Mike wants to know, Josh, what are nodes... How are nodes different than miners? How does this whole node mining network operate? You want to take a stab? I'll I'll stab it. I'll stab it. This uh this was a long road for me to even figure this out at all. I remember f- at first totally being mind blown that there's two different kinds of computers doing two different things all together, and how this all works together, and how all of this stuff works, and. I think it might be easier to start with nodes. So Dan and I, each of us run a node. And what this guy does... My node's name is Nancy, by the way. I have a Twitter thing going on. Hashtag thank Nancy. Is that your actual node? I was wondering when I saw the picture. That's my actual node, Nancy. I, I was suspecting you ripped off a picture somewhere and you were just posing. Nope. She no, gets her own shots. I have a naked node. I haven't named it. It's an anonymous node. It likes to be anonymous, so it doesn't have a name. Naked nodes are hot, dude. Naked with a little colorful fan. Mm. So what these guys do, they just sit on the network and they, they vet every incoming transaction on the entire network. So as this guy, he's running all day, all night, 24-7, both of our nodes. Each one of them is independently verifying and checking every single transaction that, uh, that happens on the Bitcoin network. So. The, most, the, the real purpose to have a node besides just support the network is so that you can be absolutely sure without any doubt that w- the transactions you're performing yourself 
are the true and accurate transaction that is happening on the Bitcoin network. Because otherwise, you're always trusting some other party, some other entity to be telling you that your transaction is, is legitimate and that it happened and that it's, it's all on the up and up. So with your own node, you don't have to trust anybody at all. Just your own node operating yourself, verifying all the rules and regs of Bitcoin. What's the name of your node, by the way? You have one? I didn't name it. It doesn't have a name. I'll work Dude, on we, that. Yeah, we need to set up a... Uh, you, it sounds like you have labeled the gender of your node as a male, and mine is a female. We need to set up a lightning channel so these nodes can fuck. Yeah, we do. And I want our nodes to fuck. They will. They'll mate. Just <laughs> yeah, mating nodes. Dude, I think uh, I like where you started there. Here's kind of my, and this, this, is, this is a question that's just so hard to sum up. Um, I've, I've mentioned this book on this podcast a couple times, but if you're really curious about nodes versus miners and basic tech and Bitcoin, I really, really recommend Jan Pritzker's Inventing Bitcoin. It's a great book. It's a short read. It walks through all this stuff. Um, here's my best stab at a summary. So miners are the computers that are performing the proof of work math problems or, or what, what we would call the hashes. And what they're doing is extremely energy intensive. It's expensive, costs a lot of money to do it. And they're, they're basically engaging in the process of writing transactions to the blockchain. So when you execute a Bitcoin transaction, Miners are the ones that are actually, I guess you could say, inscribing it on the blockchain. Nodes, on the other hand, in contrast to miners, they expend very minimal energy and they are validating and confirming the accuracy of the work that the miners are doing. So at the end of the day, nodes are the decision makers on whether the miners get paid. If the miners do accurate math and accurate work and they make accurate inscriptions to the blockchain, the nodes are the ones that decide that the miners get rewarded with Bitcoin. And I think what's what struck me in studying this is that this proof of work system, Josh, is totally asymmetric. So the math problems that the miners are engaged in as they inscribe uh, transactions and Bitcoin movement on the blockchain, that is, as I mentioned, extremely energy intensive. But then the nodes to confirm the accuracy of that work that the miners are executing, that's, that's extremely easy for them to do. So a way to think about this is it's like a, it's like a, a crossword puzzle. It's really hard to solve, but if you have the answer key, you can check the work super quickly. And that's what the nodes are up to. Um, and I... I also think we'd be remiss not to identify that the nodes on the Bitcoin network are ultimately voting and deciding what the real Bitcoin is. You want to talk to us a little bit about like Bitcoin Cash 2017, that hard fork and what happened? You were more, we were both yeah, in will. Bitcoin when that happened, but you were more aware of it. You'd been in longer and paying more attention to that. I, th I want to go back to the proof of work really quick because I had a small uh, anecdote that I think might help people understand how proof of work works uh, in a more everyday sense. You ever been on a website where to sign up, you had to do one of those CAPTCHAs? You, you have to solve yeah. that small puzzle that's kind of obscure. Mm -hmm. That way a bot can't do it. 
what you're doing there is proof of work. You're proving that you're a human, that you're not a bot. Mm. So that's a small example of how proof of work works in kind of an everyday sense. You're performing proof of work whenever you, whenever you fill out one of those captures. So in 2017 though, the, um, when those, when the, the black war was going on, there was a group of people that had the idea that Bitcoin should be uh, multiple megabyte blocks in order to have more transaction throughput. And on its face, that makes a whole lot of sense because that's a way to scale. But with the, I think the misnomer, the misunderstanding that those people had was that over time, you centralize the whole platform more and more as the megabyte capacity goes up. And the reason for that is that nodes have to become data farms at some point. Right now, we're at one megabyte blocks. And that allows Dan and I with only, I mean, you could run with a 500 gigabyte hard drive perfectly fine for probably the next year or two. If uh, what they had wanted to do with Bitcoin Cash and what they did do, actually, eventually you're going to have terabytes and terabytes of data and it becomes more onerous for an everyday plebe like Dan or myself to run this thing. And so it, it becomes just less way and less too big of a computer. Just right. for someone that's it just the, the size of the computer you'd need to run or just the, the cost Bitcoin of core protocol is just beyond the scope of most everyday people like us. Right. I mean, if we had to buy, say, a 10 terabyte, 10 terabytes of a hard drive in order to run a node, it would just be it would probably cost, I don't know, five hundred to a thousand dollars to run that node right now and in the future even more. So it basically is just a, a bad method for scaling. And the Lightning or the uh, Bitcoin core developers wanted to layer the, the, uh, the scaling, which is what they've done with Lightning. And that is a much more elegant, much better solution because nobody needs to store reams and reams of data for that to work. But I digress there. What, what happened in 2017 was that the, the miners thought that they controlled the network. They thought that with the, if they had 51% or more of the hashing power, of the mining capacity of the network, they could force the hand of everybody else, cause a hard fork and take over the entire network. What we found out after that whole war in 2017 was that in fact, the nodes are the ones with the power because the nodes mm -hmm. have the voting rights, which Dan mentioned. So if I decide that I'm going to keep running Bitcoin core instead of Bitcoin cash, then I'm, I'm running Bitcoin core, no matter what Bitcoin cash does. And if the majority of the network decides the same thing, which in fact they did, then Bitcoin Cash simply splits off and is now a, a penny stock and Bitcoin continues on being what it is and what it was intended to be. And so basically what we learned is that the power in the network is contained in the nodes. So if you're running a node, you're a voting member, you're a, you're, you have the ability to verify all your own transactions. And you're just a good Bitcoin citizen in general. Yeah, you're, you are. I, I sent out a tweet a while ago saying, this is your ballot. This is a true democracy uh, in the Bitcoin network. And the way that you vote is through your node. Um, to kind of summarize and maybe add on to the Bitcoin cash thing, I, we both actually finished, I think we both this last month finished reading The Block Size Wars, which is a book that, rehashes everything that happened back in 2017. I was invested in Bitcoin in 2017, but I was too much of a noob to even understand what a hard fork meant. So it's interesting. It was really fascinating for me to be able to look back and 
sort of grok everything that went down. And it is truly mind blowing. I mean, I certainly had, did not understand the gravity of the situation. Oh, back man. Then. Dude, not it, even when, close. What a scary time. I mean, you had, so we, you drew, you, you dropped the Bitcoin cash thing. So essentially you, you did a good job of explaining, but to, to sort of summarize that again, you had this large, powerful faction of individuals that wanted to increase the block size on Bitcoin. And in order to do that, they had to do this thing called a hard fork that mandated everybody move over to this new protocol, Bitcoin Cash, okay? And when this was going down, you had 80% of the world's hash rate. So 80% of the power in the mining network was behind this change. You had the largest mining manufacturer in the world in Bitmain behind it. You had Satoshi Nakamoto's self-proclaimed right-hand man, the creator of Bitcoin's right-hand man, Gavin Andreessen, supporting this. Um, many, if not most, of the major exchanges were supporting it, including Coinbase. You had what Just I about think every was the large corporation. Bitcoiner at the time and Roger Ver siding with this new version of Bitcoin. And despite all of that, the node operator said, go fuck yourself. So it, it's crazy that that amount of power was behind this change and the voting members in this digital network democracy said no and now today bitcoin cash still exists but i think i looked yesterday it was trading at like 470 bucks versus bitcoin which is up by close to 40,000 right now so it's less than it's about one, less than 170th the price of bitcoin it got up to almost 50% at one point back in 2017 it was wild. It was at $4,500, if I remember correctly. I remember just not knowing. Like, I thought there was a very good chance that Bitcoin Cash was going to kill Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I it think... It seemed like it for a bit. I think another important component of node operators deciding what the real Bitcoin is, is that you have a lot of new participants asking the question, well, it's open source code. Why can't you just create a new Bitcoin? And the response of Bitcoin node operators like the two of us is, go for it. That's akin to saying, um, I've invented a better Facebook or I've created a new electrical outlet. Like, good luck getting entrenchment it's, with your new idea. Because, it's already happened thousands of times. I mean, yeah. every single altcoin in existence is a variation of Bitcoin. They, they just copied it and changed parameters. That's it. Yeah. Um, Another comment before we move off nodes, we spent some time here, maybe over some people's heads, certainly under others, but um, quite simply, nodes are how you access the Bitcoin blockchain. So anytime you do anything on the Bitcoin network, you're using a node. So for example, if you are checking your balance on a hardware wallet, there's some node out there that's accessing your keys to see how much Bitcoin you have. Everything is working through a node. So in, in this sense, it's similar to you need a computer to access the internet. You need a node to access the Bitcoin blockchain. All right. So we have a question here from uh, a gentleman named Gambling Al. Gambling Al. I'm going to pose this one to you, Dan. Great fireman, Gambling Al. Gambling Al. He's a great gambler too. Oh, yeah. Is Bitcoin vulnerable to market manipulation? And should this worry me long term? Um, and I think he mentioned specifically Tether as um, somehow manipulating the market. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, I don't, my answer is not emphatically, no, you cannot manipulate this market because 
it depends on what you mean by market manipulation. I mean, yeah, any market can be manipulated. Yeah. Yes. If a whale makes a huge purchase or sells a ton of Bitcoin, the price is going to move. I mean, that's just how supply and demand works. And I digress here, but this is part of the reason playing around with leverage is such a bad idea. You have no idea at what moment some huge player is going to jump in or exit. Um, I think as the market cap increases, the risk of these sudden movements based off of big players goes down. I mean, when this thing was trading in the millions and even just in the you know, single digit to tens of billions, this was more of a concern. Now we're into the hundreds of billions. You know, we're at 700 some billion right now. We were up near a trillion recently. And I think, I think Josh, we have some evidence of some big players making some moves without massive market fluctuation. So, you know, uh, Elon bought a billion. Yeah, the price went up, but then he sold a million saying that he was testing liquidity in the market. We didn't see a huge jump. You've got Michael Saylor, who's made numerous entries in the to the tune of hundreds of millions. His first purchase was $200 million, and he did that over the course of a week. And he obviously used, um, he used small, small increments here and there to buy. He, didn't, he claims he didn't move the market significantly at all over the course of a week using $200 million to buy. So, I mean, yeah. there is plenty of liquidity in this market to absorb large buy and sell, as long as they don't do it all at once. If you spend... I think that a $200 million purchase or sell would absolutely cause a problem in the market. Yeah. So it's a tricky, I mean, yes, there are people out there that are whales slinging coin both directions to get movement and then reap benefits from idiots. So yeah, there is, there is what you could say some quote unquote manipulation going on, but that's just the nature of, uh, open market. And you have to be ready for it. I think this is a very good reason not to. I, I know a lot of people, maybe people that are traders especially, like to put stop losses in so they can peg themselves into a position. So you're up 50%. You put your stop loss in, say, 10% below where the market's trading. There are people out there with enough money that go stop loss hunting. So they Oh, yeah. That's exactly the price what I was down. kind of hitting at there. Exactly. Scoop, scoop up your stop loss and now you're out. And if you actually had a long-term position you wanted to stay on with, you just got punched out of the system. So I wouldn't recommend stop losses in Bitcoin if you're trying. I mean, I understand trying to protect yourself, but you could easily get stopped out in very quickly, especially with only a 10% margin. Yeah. Oh, man, I just cracked a Lagunitas something easy. That's a good beer. You cool. nursing anything over on that side? I have side? a little something something, actually, now that you Are mentioned it. Are you serious? It. A Lagunitas, yeah. We're both rocking Lagunitas. Good beer. Um, here's beer. my tether. You, you, he mentioned something about tether in there too, right? In this question, yeah, I want to hear your take on tether. Um, I am just so everyone's aware, tether is a stable coin. If you don't know, and it's so one tether is worth one dollar, and the way it's supposed to work is it maintains its peg to the dollar, and it's run by a private company out of Singapore. So there is question about whether or not it has the reserves backing it to legitimately back it one to one. So there's a lot of worry about if, you know, everyone did a run on the bank of Tether, if they would actually have the resources to, to pony up or if they would collapse and cause a big problem. Yeah. Sorry okay, to so, interrupt. That's, that's the background on Tether real quick. And there are other stable coins too. Tether's not the only one. Yeah, there's a bunch. Tether is the largest, correct? 
Yeah, I think by a large margin. Um, I'm actually looking it up now. So Tether is about $25 billion. Okay, so comment a couple comments on Tether. First of all, people are bitching about Tether being fractionally reserved, essentially. <laughs> I mean, that, it's it? not a one-to-one, but... Wait, wait, it's actually uh, fractionally reserved on a fractional reserve system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's but it's hilarious. like, do you know where I'm going with this? Like, if you're freaked out, like, do they have all the money there? Pull your fucking money out of Wells Fargo and chase then. Okay? Exactly. Because... I would uh, be willing to bet that they have less backing theirs. I mean, as Greg Foss himself said, all these banks are insolvent. I mean, he worked for the right. Royal Bank of Canada, who was out and out insolvent in the 80s, and is probably still this to this day because they have to they don't have to mark anything to market right so, it but it's people it's pointing fingers at bullshit in a market that they're trying to create fear uncertainty and doubt in without looking in the mirror with what they're actually participating in which is the current banking system my second point here on tether is just looking at the numbers mathematically so tethers at what let's say 25 billion Bitcoin's at 740 billion or whatever. We were up near a trillion. Even if Tether is partially backed and the thing implodes, I would deem what would occur, the scenario that would transpire to be just a blip on the radar for Bitcoin. So when people are uh, hyperbolically just touting, uh, touting this huge... FUD and saying this tether thing is a massive deal. It's going to lead to Bitcoin implosion. I'm like, the math just isn't in your corner. It's a it's a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket compared to Bitcoin. Not a threat. It's definitely a distraction. I'm not I, worried about it in the least bit. I think you're dead on. I think in the I think in short term, I actually do think it could cause massive pain if there was a problem. Because absolutely when you compare it to the market cap of Bitcoin at 800 billion right now it's nothing but the market price is actually set on the margin so i would be willing to bet that yeah. the actual liquidity moving around is so small compared to the market cap itself that 25 billion dollars would be pretty bad real i mean in a short-term outlook but i think you're absolutely right in the long term again though there's no way this thing is first of all i have every reason to believe that tether is mostly if not completely backed Right. I heard whatever. One of the main. So they're backed by, they have cash accounts. They're backed by real estate assets, which is like the real estate that the company owns. And they also have, I think it was $500 million in loans to, to Binance. They're associated with Binance, the large crypto exchange. Um, so yeah, they're not 100% cash backed. They're cash asset, et cetera, and backed by a loan from Binance. And they have been investigated by, uh, was it the SEC that investigated yeah. them last mm-hmm. month or the, or the month before? And they, I believe they came out above Smelling water. Smelling like roses, yeah. Yeah. You know For who now. I think is in trouble if uh, Tether were to collapse? It's a lot of these DeFi coins. Because I know a lot of the collateral that's put up on, say, like Ethereum and these other decentralized finance tokens, a lot, Tether is used significantly in that arena. And I'm, yep. I'm talking a little bit out of turn, but I think this would have far more confident, uh, far more effect on some of these other altcoins than it would on Bitcoin. Yeah. I think that in general, if we saw Tether just blow up, I think the entire crypto sector would take some pretty big lumps in the short term. But uh, I also don't think that it's a long-term problem whatsoever. I mean, when you start comparing a Tether crisis which 
probably doesn't even exist to oh china banning all manning or binding, uh, ban- china banning all mining in the country i mean it's it's a very very small piece of fud in comparison yeah and we actually watched that one play out it's amazing that uh it's it was able to hold 30 pretty much with that all of that shit hitting the fan gonna be so interesting to see what happens we're not gonna sit here and talk a ton about price but we dropped down into the upper 20s all the way from 64 we've just in the last couple days made a push up near we just above 40 right yeah 40 for a little bit and then back down below but yeah we'll see it's this 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 cycle is so so helpful in substantiating the idea of don't time this market. I mean, it's just like, I, I honestly, I don't know if you feel differently, but I sit here right now saying, honest to God, I don't know whether we're going to 18 or 180. <laughs> I think they're both in play and I'm just going to keep on DCA and man. And if there's a big ripe dip, Wait. I may throw something at it, but it's just DCA all the way for me. I'm going to keep preaching it. I, I could do, uh, that is exactly what I think anyone should be doing right now because it's a coin flip, which way it's going to go. So um, just keep your long-term panties out of a bunch and keep buying a little bit at a time. You'll be all right. All right, next question. This one comes from uh, Sharting Jim. Sharting Jim, as we're going to call him. Oh, Sharting Jim. I know him. Um, I do too. Good guy. Good guy. Great guy. This is what I would say about Sharting Jim. Um, Somehow, great guy, consummate professional, outstanding family man, loving husband. Amidst all that, total and complete piece of shit. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, that's <laughs> that sums him up perfectly. Oh yeah. Um, oh, what is uh, what is uh, Shart and Jim want to know about? What's he think? Uh, here's his question. He says, "Why is trading a bad idea if I feel I have a good understanding of charts and trends?" That's awesome. Awesome question. I th- we kind of just talked about that a bit, but I think I would approach that by by saying that trading is speculation and speculation is gambling. Um, so gambling, I mean, we Leave all know gambling is fun, Al, right? Jim. Yeah. He's like a mini gambling L. I would say if you really want to play that like swing trade game where you think you can pull the bottoms and sell the tops and I mean, you can certainly get lucky from time to time and maybe more often than not. But if you really want to do that, if you have the propensity to want to play with and gamble with some money just make it a small percentage of your allocation maybe like five percent and make it your play money and play the game and maybe you win maybe you lose but you're not gonna kill yourself if you don't um but again i think you're you're the vast majority of the money that you want to play with here dcaing from here until the end of time is the best way to play this Mm. amen um Okay, with trading in general, and this would hold true for me with Bitcoin, all of crypto, as well as the traditional stock market, any market you're involved in, I think what is so challenging for newcomers is that when you get started, you do win most of the time. Um, In my experience, being exposed to people that start trading, most individuals begin thinking that they have a special talent for it. But you talk to them five years later and there's a lot more humility. And I, 
I think the reason this is, is that kind of the way it plays out is that one bad or, or unexpected move can really, really harm you. So if you execute nine good trades and one bad one, a lot of times you're worse off than if you just did 10 consistent moves. And it takes time to kind of figure that out for people. Um, another component to this is that people, it's just, it's behavioral. People forget their losses. Um, they build poor habits. They get more aggressive. They get more risky. And um, over time, they just lose track of what it would have, what the benchmark is. And I mean, I remember reading, what book was it? It was like, uh, it might have been Jake Bogle's Little Red Book of Investing, or is that was that what that book's called? Yeah, I remember Jack Bogle, the guy, the the uh, yeah yeah, yeah fidelity. Yeah. He was uh, Vanguard. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. Vanguard. Yeah, he's the guy and, who, who introduced uh, not ETFs, but um, the other index funds. ETF, index funds. That's yeah. It, yeah. Um, that that book comes to mind for me right now because I, I remember one of his main points in there was that like something like in the mid to upper 90% of brokers underperform the S&P 500 on a long-term time horizon. Yet, yet so many new traders think they have this special knack for it and they're going to be able to outcompete these professionals. So I don't mean to belittle and undermine people, but when I see a fireman day trading with significant money, I'm like, if you're successful, dude, quit here and go work in finance because you're. Uh, if you are successful, you're outperforming the vast majority of these professionals. Um, I think what you said about um, being consistent is important because uh, have you read the book Atomic Habits? I have not. It's it's basically just about training yourself to have good habits, and then um, if you get that training in, it's just like working out is a great example. So if you work out 15 minutes a day, but you just do it consistently and you make sure you do it every day, you're going to crush somebody who goes to the gym for an hour, but is inconsistent and does it, you know, twice a week. And then they give up and they fuck off. The person who just has a consistent uh, plan and habit is the person who's going to come out on top in just about every venue in life. And that includes investing. Just make it consistent um, and get on that bus and ride it slow and be, you know, be thoughtful about what you're doing, have a thesis, and then continue to accrue the assets that you think are valuable into the long term. I think the thesis is key too. learn what you're investing in. If you believe in the long term fundamentals of something, if you're convicted in the value proposition of an asset, then stay consistent, keep dumping that money in DCA. The other thing I think we have to just speak to here is tax consequences. Yeah, you're just you're you're making there's taxable events right and left when you're trading between these coins. You often forget about them and you're either not telling the truth to the IRS and exposing yourself to risk there or you're paying the consequence. And if you're just buying and holding an asset, that's not that same expense isn't in play. Yeah. One of the most expensive things you pay for in your entire life, I would argue the most expensive thing is taxes. And the less you can expose yourself to the, to the tax man, the better. The other thing with trading, say, altcoins or crypto in particular, is you're trading against the best performing asset in existence. I mean, your, your hurdle rate is a 200% annualized return, which is Bitcoin. You know, good fucking luck. 
Yeah. And you know what? I think that actually this, this question is coming up later, but I, I brought up that exact point with, uh, with lending out your Bitcoin. If you're going to lend out your Bitcoin at 4%, I mean, think about the fact that you're lending out an asset that accrues 200% a year on average, and you're going to gain an extra 4%, but with the amount of risk, you don't even know. Right. So I wanted to bring it up now to, just because you said the same exact uh, thing that mm-hmm. I would like to say about it, but it is, that's the same idea for trading this thing or for lending it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I, we got another one from Shart and Jim. Hey, I don't think... Did I ever tell you, Dan, about the reason Sharding Jim got that name? No. What? Well, I mean, I've heard a lot of situations about him with uh, poop encounters, but uh, when I think of Sharding Jim, I have one specific story that comes to mind. And Shart and Jim and I have quite a long history, and we've got a little business that we run together on the side. And so him and I were up on a roof. But to really flesh the story out, you got to know something about him and I. When we work together, we're both very stubborn and not willing to give an inch to the other one. So prior to this story, the two of us were working on a hot day and I needed some water. This guy refuses to stop and get me some water. So I'm just making a mental note. All right. This guy's an asshole. I'm going to make him pay one day. Maybe it's not today, but I'm going to wait. And one day he's going to pay. So I'm driving. Maybe a day or two later, he's got to take a shit. And I'm not giving him an inch. I'm making him wait. I'm hoping that he'll actually shit his pants. So we get, on a, we get to a job. We get on the roof. We're working on the roof of a house. And he's like, dude, I have to shit. I have to leave. And I've got the keys to the van. I'm not giving him an inch. He's like, I have to shit. I have to go now. There's no, there's no way I'm going to make it out of here. I'm like, well... Hold it. I mean, we're going to be done in like 15 minutes. You'll be fine. So he's sitting on the the peak of this roof and shits his pants. Fully shits his (laughs) pants. (laughs) He's like, and the funny part about this is we're like three or four houses away from where he lived at the time. He could have gotten down and maybe shuffled to his house without shitting his pants. He had to go home and take his underwear off and throw them away so that he wouldn't let his wife see that he shit his pants on that roof. That's so that power, is that's the definition of a power move. What you did there, yeah. I didn't give him an inch. He shit his pants. That's beyond sharding. That's yeah, I don't know the, the extensive the how extensive the damage was, but from what I heard and smell came out, he fully shit his pants. It was cotton. He hit cotton for sure. What age was he when he pooped his pants? This must be four years ago. So he was and like a thirty-two-year-old man. Who shit his pants on someone else's house on their rooftop? All right. What serious question does this guy have then? Hit me. He says, why would Bitcoin survive if the Fed made a digital coin that could be transacted with? Wouldn't people want that more because it's more stable and also digital? Sharding Jim. <laughs> Sharding Jim. Um, all right. CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies. They are happening. They are inevitable um all major nation states are currently working on them i believe china is leading the league my thesis my humble opinion which is shared by a lot of serious bitcoiners is that cbdc's will accelerate the adoption of bitcoin digital fiat so fiat currency in digital form is the surveillance state's wet dream and i th- i think you you have to remember 
that Bitcoin was born out of the cypherpunk movement. What are we talking? 80s, 90s, maybe even before that, Josh? Yeah. And yeah, the these folks, guys were all about freedom. Yeah. The folks involved in this project, Satoshi included, were originally motivated by their concern regarding the, the surveillance state. I mean, yeah, they were trying, but it's not like their, their original goal was like, let's create a store of value asset that's going to compete with gold. No, like these cypherpunks, the origins of Bitcoin were, let's create a form of money, a way to transact outside the surveillance state. And so when you start thinking about CBDCs, digital, digital fiat, you start to enter a realm where governments can monitor and control when, where, how you spend your money. They can do things, since it's programmable money under their, their purview, like give money expiration dates, Additionally, they could make quantitative easing look like child's play and inject money wherever, however they want. It um, sounds like something straight out of 1984, really. Yeah. Is what it sounds like to me. It's, it's a horrible, horrible thing to have happened. I mean, for them to be able to not only sneak, or sneak a look at literally everything you do, you'll never be able to sneak by like paying a contractor in cash again and not paying taxes. Right. Or, you know, getting a deal making gone you know, will be the days no of privacy cash. zero yep. no monetary anonymity whatsoever so my my thought here is that essentially what a you know fed made digital coin would do is it would first of all it would decrease the stigma of quote unquote fake internet money so all these boomers that are out there saying like you can't touch your bitcoin i can touch my cash that goes out the window when you have a digital fiat. So it's going to decrease the stigma of, di of, quote, of digital money. And it's also going to highlight Bitcoin's strengths, as well as the hardness of Bitcoin, the censorship resistance of Bitcoin, um, the ability to have self-sovereignty and self-custody. It's basically going to amplify Bitcoin's strengths, while at the same time identifying the weaknesses of fiat. So, yeah, I know sharding Jim understands this well enough. I think that he was just trying to throw us a question that he thinks people he would. threw us a bone and yeah. he, te he teed and it's it a good question. But I, what I'm saying though is, uh, I don't think anybody in the space that has any real understanding of what's going on would ask that question. This is more of the kind of question that you would expect to see from the mainstream media, you mm -hmm. know, more FUD, the kind of thing where you understand that the person posing this question fundamentally doesn't understand the value proposition of Bitcoin at all if this question is asked. Yeah. And or they don't understand the the real problem in the fiat system, you know, at all. Right. Couldn't you couldn't you envision though, Josh, some ill-informed bureaucrats not understanding this, being confused in the way you just described and Absolutely. Think I mean, we're talking about the kind of people that uh, they thought they were going to ban like 30 round magazines for AR-15s by, they said, there was literally a lady, a California Democrat who said, if we ban these magazines, they won't be able to, once they are fired, they won't have any more to use. So they're useless. She thought literally that once a magazine is expended, once the rounds are gone, it goes <laughs> yeah. to the garbage bin. Right, right. I mean, this is the kind of people we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, so there could be government officials that think they're pouring water on the Bitcoin fire when they're actually pouring gasoline on it with CBDCs. And that oh, could be kind hope. of fun to watch. 
You're right, though. Sharton Jim, I think he knows the answer to this question, Josh. He teed the ball up very nicely for us on a well-groomed tee box. And I would say I usually carry... I have a very dense golf background for any of our listeners who care. Um, I used to be a player. And um, I I normally probably carry the ball. And I'm going to be modest here. I probably carry it 270. I'm going to say he teed that up, and I probably carried that 280 or 290. You agree? I agree. Yeah. I think uh, I think we part. both Thank you, Sharp Jim. All right, next question. Wait, this one, holy cow. I didn't I didn't pay attention to the how we ordered this. This is also from Sharp and Jim. Yeah, Sharp and Jim just poured it on. Um he asks, will Bitcoin be worth 1 million dollars? 1 million dollars. It's going to be the title of this episode. We you have to. I remember Peter McCormick was saying like if you if you mention Bitcoin price and you use the word bull, you get like three times the number of listeners when than when you actually talk about constructive, helpful things. So that's the we'll kind of shell game we, we're going to do start that same playing. thing. Yep, we have to. I mean, we don't have Greg Foss on this episode to carry us. So no, this is just we're going to have couple, to use every trick in the book. Couple of humble plebs. What are your thoughts? Will I, it be worth a million dollars? Let's get into it. I mean, giving it no time frame, I totally think it will be eventually but time frame no idea uh i think i think greg i think we'll defer to greg foss on this one because he had a really really good conceptual idea of how this could happen and a good way of explaining it to people so if you if you imagine that every financial asset in the world is worth roughly 900 trillion dollars and we're talking real estate land Everything that has a value that you can count is $900 trillion. That was his total for the global economy, right? In his right. article? Yeah. So now the, the simple math is divide that by 21 million and that's how much Bitcoin will be worth, right? But if you only factor Bitcoin as taking 5% of that total pie, 5% of that $900 trillion gives each Bitcoin the potential to be worth $2.1 million at some undisclosed time in the future probably 20 years or so from now, if not, if not longer. But that is a pretty, I mean, it, when I'm approaching an investment, I'm sure Dan, you're the same. If you're going to buy Amazon, the first thing you should ask yourself is what is the addressable market of this company that I'm purchasing? And what percentage mm-hmm. of that market is it already garnering? So if Amazon, let's, I'm just going to throw these numbers out there with absolutely no idea if this is accurate. Let's say the addressable market of retail Online retail is a hundred, just say for even numbers, a hundred billion dollars. Amazon is worth 20 billion of that. So 20% of the addressable market. We know fairly accurately the, ma- the maximum upside for Amazon is now 5x, right? If it yep. takes the entire market, assuming no other growth. But Bitcoin, being this asymmetric bet that we're talking about, that we keep talking about, what percentage of this overall market are we talking about right now with less than a trillion? I mean, we're talking less than 1% of the addressable market. Right. Probably. Wait, hold on. But to interrupt you real quick, this point is so freaking important that I want to quickly interject because a lot of investors don't think this way whatsoever. And I'm thinking about shit coins. Like people are saying, my coin is going to be worth X. And the follow-up is just how. Show yeah. me how. Because there's going to be enough idiots to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what Greg does in this article. And this is what we're going through right now. 
What is the addressable market? What could it possibly capture? There's your upper bound. This is a great way to think through all investments. So I mean, short of like a brand new industry that we haven't even developed yet, there, I can't think of another financial asset that I could buy that has anything close to the kind of upside potential that Bitcoin still has, even at $38,000 yep. a coin and the, right and now. And there is the asymmetry. That is, that is what we're talking about when we say Bitcoin is asymmetric. The height that this balloon could go to is mind-boggling. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at 2.1 million, or let's just say get back to 1 million, I mean, we're still looking at a massive, massive, I mean, that's like a 15x from here. I, I doubt there's many investors in their entire life that are lucky enough to, to have something that goes up 15x in the entire span of time that they own it. And this is something that even if we look at it just probabilistically, as FOSS does, that 75% chance this thing goes to zero. That, and then say 5%, it goes to 2 million. And then the rest of the spread, a few percentage points here and there, goes to 100,000, 200,000, whatever. You should be exposed to an asset, at least minutely, in your portfolio, even if it has a very small potential of doing a 20x move and a greater potential to go to zero, but you should still have some exposure just because probabilistically it makes sense to have a little bit, which is what we're just trying to beat into everybody's head. Have some of this, have some exposure. Because 1 million is not hard to get to, in my opinion. No, it's not, which is crazy to say. But you went at this from the FOSS angle. I was actually recently reading this article by Alex Gladstein, and he was mentioning... All right, just just some markets that Bitcoin could take a small bite out of. Uh, the stock market's at 100 trillion, real estate's at 225 trillion, bond market's at 250 trillion, art and collectibles market's at 20 trillion, uh, offshore banking is 30 trillion, gold's market cap is 10 trillion. And here sits Bitcoin at 700 some billion. And it's got these characteristics we've talked about on this podcast. It's perfected scarcity. It's censorship resistant. It's decentralized. It's inherently digital. It's portable, endlessly divisible. Oh, yeah. And it's programmable and open source. So it, it can be adapted and built on for decades and centuries to come. It's got these qualities that indicate it could take a bite at a lot of different markets. And there's just so much space for this thing to run. It's you know, crazy it's, when you start thinking about how small, what a pittance it is compared to the global economy and what it's trading at. I mean, I, I just couldn't, that episode with Greg was just such a delight because I, I just, I agree. I mean, I think it is just wicked. If you're looking at this as a, as a 10-year trade, this thing is just wicked cheap when you think about what it could accomplish. You know, what's really wild. What's crazy wild to think about is as long as the internet exists, this thing is going to continue to exist. I mean. Assuming humanity doesn't bomb itself back to the Stone Age in the next 20 to 50 years, and we continue to grow and technologically improve, Bitcoin will continue to exist. This thing is going, is going to exist in 100 years, and maybe in 1,000 years. Can you imagine how people are going to look back on this period of time and go, holy shit, these people fucked up so badly. How did they not see this? Right. We're starting to talk about the Lindy effect, this idea that 
the longer things exist, the more inevitable it seems in people's minds they'll exist forever. So you take like the internet, which is only decades old, you know, a number of decades old, but most people would agree it's inevitable this thing's going to be around forever because the internet can be built on, right? It's programmable. Um, it's an, it's a protocol stack that can be amended and adjusted and, and, tiered upward. And the same is true with Bitcoin. That's why this thing could exist for certainly decades on decades. And I, th I definitely think hundreds of years is, is totally viable because of the way its architecture is. Yeah. And I don't think that there's going to be a better alternative to proof of work. Right. And as long as that's true, Bitcoin, I don't believe can be surpassed. As long as proof of work proves and to be the I think that that is truly the innovation that Bitcoin brought to the table. There was a whole bunch of other things that it melded together to work, but proof of work was actually the invention that made this all actually have value because you have to, you have to put some value in in order to get it out. So it actually, it forces it. It's like a force function for value to be poured into this thing. Proof of work is alpha in this space. Everything else is beta. Um, uh, when, one other thing I wanted to mention about this, we're, we're basically talking about the market cap of Bitcoin because you're taking the market cap of Bitcoin, you're dividing it by 21 million, and then we get to Shart and Jim's question of, is that number a million dollars? This is something I've thought of a lot and I haven't, I haven't heard a lot of people explore, but I think an argument can be made, Josh, that in the age of Bitcoin, more people will value store of value assets. So in years to come, and we, and Mind you, we're, we're in the midst of a macroeconomic backdrop with inevitable inflation, massive amounts of money printing. So there's a macro backdrop that is ripe and ready for store value assets to accrue value to begin with. But then you start to think about what Bitcoin potentially ushers in. And I think to wrap your head around that, you have to realize that current store of value options and assets, they have shortcomings. Think about gold, right? Gold shortcomings are readily apparent. It's easy to centralize. It's expensive to move. It is cumbersome and obvious to store, right? Those are some shortcomings of gold. Let's look at real estate. This is another, many people would say store value asset. It's a good idea to hold real estate, but you got to pay property taxes. You're looking at 1% to 3% annually. I would characterize property taxes as the cost of maintaining or you storing your store tenants. value asset. You got to deal with people and, in your house. <laughs> right. It's not fun, man. S same with, you know, you, you could, we could go into the art and collectibles market. We could go into the holding diamonds, yada, da da da. These things all have shortcomings. Then you, then you start looking at Bitcoin and you say, this thing is essentially free to store. It's virtually impossible to centralize. It's liquid as hell, meaning you can buy and sell it with ease. I mean, I think Bitcoin is the representation of a store of value asset that's just a lot easier, less expensive, less cumbersome to get involved with. So I think the argument could be made that in years to come, years and decades to come, more people will value store of value assets just because they're easier to get involved in, i.e. Bitcoin. You following me there? I am tracking. And all, all of those... All of those things you mentioned, real estate, fine art, all of the things that people use as store value now, 
this simplifies their idea for a store of value proposition and it makes it liquid. If you're somebody who's buying art because you love art, you're going to buy art anyway. But if you're someone who's buying art because you think this is one of the better avenues to store your wealth over the long term, why would you choose art that is such a finicky market, so fickle? You might pick the wrong uh, Monet or whatever it is you're buying and suddenly that thing drops in value or even worse, you find out that you had a fake all along. This thing turned out to be a bullshit copy of whatever piece of art you wanted to have. In Bitcoin, there is absolutely no worry about a fake. Everything's being verified every single mm. time. So not only are you not worried about fakes, you're not worried about tenants burning your house down or you know just wrecking your property. You're not worried about tax implications if you're sitting on this thing long term. It relieves so many stressors that so many of these other investments introduce and does it in a more liquid and if you just do a little bit of research, an easier way, like you can sit at home eating a bag of Fritos and buy yourself some Bitcoin and put it on a hardware wallet and you've got your store value asset until you want to sell it. It's extremely so easy. easy. Yeah. Um, next question, uh, if you're comfortable moving on here, Josh. Send it. Um, this one comes from, um, we'll call him Southside Billy. Southside Billy. Um, Good guy. He, Solid guy. Great guy. One of the guys. Great guy. Good guy. He asks, what resources are best for someone just starting in Bitcoin? I think he's hinting at like, what should I read? What should I engage with to learn more? There's so many. Mm -hmm. I, I've got a couple of good picks and I'm sure you can add some to them as well. Hardest question of the night for me. There's exactly. Separating the wheat from the chaff in this is tough, but one of the best ones to start um, I would, I think is the Bitcoin standard and that covers mostly economics. If you're kind of new to the whole understanding of how economics works, this is a great primer for that as well as introducing you to some features and reasons why Bitcoin improves the economic, uh, perspective that we're the landscape that we're, to, we're currently in. I think the bullish case for Bitcoin, at least right now, the, the paper that, uh, VJ wrote a, a couple of years ago. Great resource. Again, that kind of covers the history of money and also some econ. VJ Boyapati, who uh, we had on, what was that BCB? That was last episode, 14. Right. And he also has that new book. Don't forget to buy that on Amazon with the same name, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. The, the Bullish Case for Bitcoin, seriously, is it's incredible how much he sandwiches into that small article. I mean, I it's, it's like 40 pages long and it's it, dense and it's great. But it's accessible, I think. I you got to read that thing. That's a must. Um, another one that is a little bit of an edge case, but I love the way that Nick Zabo fleshes out the history of money. Surprising, well, I guess not surprisingly, considering it's Nick Zabo, who was somebody who developed a couple of other cryptocurrencies before there were cryptocurrencies. Um, he developed BitGold which the architecture of Bitgold was a huge influence on Satoshi to create Bitcoin. So Nick Zabo is a bro who fucks hard. He wrote a, a piece called Shelling Out back in 2002. Phenomenal, phenomenal history of money. Have not read this. It's about 50 pages long. And just look it up. Look up uh, Shelling Out history uh, by Nick Zabo. Solid work. Really, really good. I stole a whole bunch of his stuff one of the episodes we did initially the first couple about the history of money I straight ripped him off but 
I mean, I re- you got to rip off the masters, you know? Yeah. Um, Sapiens. I've not read any Zabo, dude. I mean, I know about Nick Zabo, but I got to get in there. Yeah, I, I think you'll love his style and uh, the amount of, I mean, knowledge this guy has. He, this guy's a true polymath. He shells out. He shells out. Sapiens, man. That book, Ooh. not about Bitcoin, mm. but it's actually the book that I attribute more than anything else um, for, to, to, to switch my mind onto track for understanding Bitcoin. So I think... And understanding the world. Yeah, there's so many mental models that are in that book that really help you explore I mean, and understand the world. This whole just a really thing, solid book. Yeah, just like I love. I mean, that book has been instrumental for me too. It's been a number of years since I read it, but just I'm realizing that, that the world is just a bunch of fictions, and whichever fictions are most useful proliferate. Bitcoin is a fiction. It's just an incredibly useful fiction. Far more useful, or potentially useful, than fiat. So therefore, it's going to accrue value. That's kind of like how I would yeah. connect Yuval to Bitcoin, even though he doesn't use the word Bitcoin. He doesn't at all. Um, he does have a chapter on money and then talks about digital money in the future. And that's really what just snapped me into this understanding of where this is always going. Uh, just obviously, Jeff Booth, who we'll be talking to uh, in a week or two, his book, The uh, Price of Tomorrow, phenomenal book about understanding how technology is going to change the world and change economics um Um, and really really great book if you read the price of tomorrow you need to finish the book and then immediately go read his article the greatest game it's basically a final chapter to the price of tomorrow that deals specifically with bitcoin great article oh really essay i didn't even know about this i gotta check this out oh awesome go read the greatest game tonight josh before you go to bed i'm gonna i'm gonna i'll cozy up with it antonopolis uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, mm. one of the, I think after I understood that Bitcoin was something I wanted to understand, Andreas Antonopoulos' YouTube videos, his, his series of books called The Internet of Money, phenomenal resource for breaking things down to, in, to a level where just regular Joes can understand this from very, very basic understanding to, I mean, this guy can go from extreme basic to absolute technical wizard he's you're right he has the nominal educator spectrum covered i've read all three volumes or i'm actually halfway through the third volume but um the internet of money actually was i think i think i can attribute to me being orange pilled the internet of money one was what delivered and jammed the orange pill down my throat wow Um, you couldn't have had it delivered by a by a better character than Antonopoulos' ability to speak is is second to none. I mean, th- these books are his speeches, which he has said are improvised. He has vague ideas of what he's going to cover, and he talks like he writes. It's crazy how smart this dude is. But t- once again, like VJ, totally accessible. Yeah, I didn't know that he didn't really prepare for those speeches. That's incredible. Yeah, he says he just has loose notes of things he wants to cover. Crazy. Wow, that guy's. He's a gem, man. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And those volumes are short, easy to read. He has that one talk where he goes into, uh, he only had like three different times in his life when he just stopped eating, stopped doing anything because he was so interested in a topic that he literally studied it until he passed out. The first one was a personal computer when he was like, a, I don't know, kid in the 80s. The second one was when he understood the internet in the early 90s. And he said the third time in his life, 
when he didn't eat or sleep for like three days while he just digested everything he could find was Bitcoin. And then yeah. I think he said that was in like 2012 or 13. But yeah, the guy's a, guy's a wizard. Anything else you want to add here? Um, I, w- I had the book of Satoshi in there too because it's a cool okay. history of Bitcoin. Yep. And uh, yeah, I would recommend that. That's more high level for sure. Um, that was my basic list. Um, okay, so I have crossed off a number of mine because you've covered them. I'm going to add a few and then kind of tie this up in a bow for people that are like, holy shit, I wanted a couple. I think, wait, to, the, the challenge is that Bitcoin is so interdisciplinary and neither Josh or I are saying we're experts in all these fields. I think we just had a, we maybe you had more of these than I did. I feel like I had barely enough of this stuff to grok Bitcoin. Like you start dealing uh-huh. with history, finance and econ, uh, technology, game theory, all these things kind of coalesce around Bitcoin. To dumb that down to two sides, there's sort of like two places you could start, Josh. You could start with the tech side, like how does Bitcoin work? How does the protocol work? How does the network work? We, we covered, you just brushed briefly on nodes and mining earlier in the episode. You could start on that side or you could start on the side of macro econ and sort of the history of money. Mm-hmm. I do recommend probably starting in the latter camp, starting with the macro econ history of money stuff. And I say yeah. that because- it's easier to digest. I think you need to first understand the problem being solved before trying to digest the solution to the problem. So I think that that's what sort of the macro econ finance history of I think money that's provides. what the Bitcoin standard does so well. Yeah. The Bitcoin, the Bitcoin standard really is basically good. an Austrian economics primer with a chapter about Bitcoin on the end. There are a couple chapters where safe loses me a little bit. I mean, safe is definitely hyperbolic. This is Saifedean Amus, but I love that book. I mean, it's an absolute must read. Um, Okay, so other books I'm going to add, and then I'm going to summarize it with like three things that I think you should start with if you're like, okay, I just wanted something simple. I'm going to add on, um, well, I'm going to touch on this again. I've mentioned it a ton of times, but if you're going to go to the tech side, so if you kind of understand the macroecon history of money side, the problem that's being solved, and you want to go to the tech, Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. Mention that. Um, Lynn Alden's blog. Lynn Alden, if you want uh, in-depth but fairly quick doses of macroecon to understand dynamics like inflation and commodities and Bitcoin and everything, but she has a number of specific blog posts on Bitcoin, lynnalden.com. Tons of great articles. Um, another mon- uh, another uh, resource I think is worth exploring is Nick Batia's Layered Money. Great book. Um, great book. Another short read. It kind of walks you through how, how the current monetary system is structured. And then the and then where how the Bitcoin system is structured. Uh, okay, and then in terms of listening material, this is a resource Josh, you and I have given out to a lot of our peers, some of the individuals that have asked questions so far in this episode. It is Robert Breedlove on with Preston Pish in Bitcoin Fundamentals B, uh, BTC zero zero one. The first episode Preston Pish did on his podcast, Bitcoin Fundamentals, part of the Investors Podcast Network. 
This is a great episode. I think it's a little over two hours. Awesome intro to Bitcoin. Another, just on that note, Breedlove does a four-hour podcast with Lex Friedman on Lex's podcast. That was like an extended version of what he did with Preston. Incredible. Really, uh, really it, incredible. I hate to butter your muffin this hard, but that Lex Friedman podcast, I can't believe I didn't think to jot that down because that is one of the best podcasts I have ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, I've listened to it twice and I, I want to listen to it again. It's stellar. Another series that I think is really good, especially does it to dispel Bitcoin FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, kind of the traditional counter arguments about Bitcoin is a series. I don't know if you've engaged with this much, Josh. It's called Gradually Then Suddenly by Parker oh, yeah. Lewis from Unchained Capital. Yep. I have read a lot of that stuff. It's really, really good. Parker Lewis is a very gifted writer and speaker. Um, okay. That's a ton of stuff. We're going to link all of that in the show notes. Um, I'm going to take, I, a, I'm gonna take a, just a real quick, if you just want to take the bare minimum approach to this, and Dan, I'll see if you agree. My, the first thing I think anyone should do if they don't want to read and they don't want to, they just want to watch some YouTube videos, just watch Antonopoulos, everything you can find on YouTube. Yeah. You'll gain a substantial amount of understanding from just watching some of his stuff on YouTube. That's a great idea. My three, so I had, I, I'm not going to go through all this stuff, but I had short articles and beginner stuff. That's how I had it labeled. The three things I had underneath there were the Breed, Love, and Pish podcast I mentioned on Bitcoin fundamentals, the Bullish Case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati, and then the Gradually Then Suddenly series by Parker Lewis, were my three, like, you have 20 hours. That's where you start. I like it. But man, I, like I, I, all this stuff is dynamite. You could start with any of the resources we just mentioned. We're going to link all of them below. I know it's a lot, but... It's all in layman's is, terms. It's nothing yeah. that's going to be way above anybody's head. Like If you can read, you can understand this stuff. Go down to the show notes, look at all this stuff, and here's your blue-collar Bitcoin six-month, one-year, two-year, what, however, whatever, however quickly you take information. Here's your prescription to get orange pill get orange pilled yeah all right we laid it we laid it on heavy there yeah we'll like like you said we'll we'll put a lot of links to this stuff in the show notes there's there's just tons of stuff i mean we're so lucky to have so many extremely intelligent well read well spoken people in this uh, arena that it's it's just inundated with information it's way better than it was four years ago mm -hmm. way better uh we got another question here from uh Voice cracking Kyle. Voice cracking Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> and he asks, when should I invest in a hardware wallet and which one is best? Mm. Um, I'll take a shot at this one, Dan. Go for it. So here's my rough um, kind of bounds for when I think you should have a hardware wallet. I'm just going to go ahead and throw a round number on it. I think if you have $1,000 in Bitcoin, or more, you should probably buy a hardware wallet um, and learn. And not only will you learn a lot more about how Bitcoin works by using this thing, but you're going to protect your money and you're going to learn how to be sovereign and develop a whole lot of understanding and 
subtlety about everything in this. You're yeah, and neither of us have reached that thousand dollar threshold, so we actually don't need hardware wallets, Josh. No, we don't. I actually sold everything yesterday, so yeah, feels a bit like a farce running this podcast now. But hey, so if you've got a thousand dollars in Bitcoin, my recommendation as a one hundred one is to get a Trezor One, fifty to sixty bucks. Buy it from Trezor themselves. Don't buy it from Amazon. Um, and if you really want to splurge, the Model T's better. Just it's only better because it's got a couple extra features that are nice, but it, it's not any more secure. It's not any truly better in any way. It just gives you some creature comforts and a touchscreen with you if you like that. It's like 160 bucks. I think if you have more than twenty thousand dollars in Bitcoin, you should start thinking about multi-sig. And when I say start thinking about it, I mean, check out Casa, check out Unchained Capital, um, especially if you're not real comfortable with even using a single hardware wallet. Using, making a multi-sig with, uh, on your own is a little bit more intimidating and something you'd have to do some time learning about and not recommended for new people. But yeah, if you're, if you're over 1,000, buy a Trezor One, play around with it, learn how the software works, learn how to move money around. If, uh, if you want to splurge, buy Model T. And then over 20 grand, multi-sig with Casa or Unchained. They make it real, real easy. Anything else on I that, Dan? I love those thresholds. Um, yeah, I think the only thing I'd add is um, there's nothing wrong with beginning the process of playing around. Um, you can use very small sums first. and I, I would encourage Bitcoiners to, and this is something I've tried to do. I need to push myself to try more. Like currently I'm not using multi-sig doing some other stuff, but, uh, I need, I want to push myself to that next phase and I'll probably start that next phase with small sums of money, experimenting, yeah. exploring, exploring. So yeah, I would say get a hardware wallet, experiment beyond your comfort zone with a small amount of money. And then once you're comfortable with that, you can move towards that. Josh and I would both agree, don't do something that you're not 100% sure you're foolproof on. Like yeah. never introduce a security schema that could trip your, you yourself up, okay? Yeah, and if, if you want to hear more about this, we have an episode that I did f three or four episodes ago just specifically about wallets. Listen to that, folks. There's a lot more in that. Um, if you want to get fancy, try a cold card. They're, they're really cool. But uh, you don't have to. It's, it's just a very simple Trezor one. Keep it simple because more people lose their money than get it stolen. That's 100% true. It's way easier to fuck up and lose your money because you don't understand your security scheme than it is to have someone steal your money. It's very hard to steal this stuff. Love it. You know what I'm going to say, Josh? I say we got a couple more questions here. I say we end it there. Um, I worked last night, got absolutely smoked, four calls after midnight, and I'm on a swap with uh, Chiseled Cody. I'm working Chiseled for Chiseled Cody. Cody tomorrow. Dude. Um, so I got to be up bright and early to do some hero work at the old right. firehouse. Let's Understood, call it there, man. brother. Cody's a great guy. Chiseled Cody. We don't have any... We'll have to get some questions from Chiseled Cody. Yeah, chat him up tomorrow, see what he's got. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening to the first installment of Firehouse Questions. Josh, you have a great evening. You as well, Dan. Everybody out there, have a good evening. Hoddle on. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.